and and up there there's no water there's a couple salt water lakes but there's no fresh water and so when i left san pedro de atacama i was loaded up with kind of as much water as i've ever carried and my cart weighed probably well over 100 pounds and my backpack was loaded with water and in one day that first day i get all like jacked up on red bull and coca leaves and everything and push out I made a mistake when I talked to Tom. I made a mistake. And that mistake was not scheduling enough time to talk with him. I tried to fit it in on a lunch break at work, and and I just am kicking myself because it was such an amazing talk, such an amazing idea. And I felt like we just started getting into it by the time I had to go. So uh, it's probably safe to say we're going to have Tom back on because he's technically not done with his journey but he is walking around the world and has been for seven years, uh, six years without stopping. He had to stop uh, at one point for just a little while, but he has he left his home in New Jersey, started walking towards the Mexican border, picked up a dog in Texas, Savannah, a three-month-old dog, and that dog, Savannah, has been with him the entire time as he made his way south to South America, uh, across Asia and Europe, and uh, even Antarctica. It has been a heck of a journey, seven years in the making. He's in Denver right now. Well, now he's actually in Seattle taking a break, but he made it to Denver before the winter, taking a little break, and he's going to finish his walk back home to New Jersey soon. And he was on the show back in episode 270 originally, and then episode 517, both of those about two years apart and uh, two years apart here. So we talked to him right at the beginning of his journey, uh, maybe a year or so in, uh, and then another few years in. So, so we've gotten the full sweep on Tom Tursich's story. So uh, it, it, it's awesome to be able to connect with him again and uh, tell you about him. Uh, and I definitely recommend checking out his other two shows as well. Uh, they're linked in the show notes. Check those out because um, you're going you're gonna to want to listen to those and listen to this. And it's amazing for someone who has walked around the world, literally on foot with a baby stroller and a dog, how applicable the lessons are to you and me who most likely are not doing that. So um, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing the things he's saying. And so I'm very excited to bring you this episode. So let's, uh, you know, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. Tom, welcome back to Adventure Sports Podcast. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me, Mason. You mentioned you're at your uh, your girlfriend's house. How, how are you able? That's my first question. Like, how are you able to maintain a relationship <laughs> while walking around the world? Like, what is that even like? Well, uh, this is like pretty new. We met right after I left Seattle, and kind of up until now, you know, I've been traveling for about six and a half years. Up until now, uh, it's been uh, impossible or I haven't wanted it or whatever. A, a lot of factors come into play that I wasn't able to have a relationship. Uh, but now being back home, a lot's changed. Uh, I'm a lot more comfortable and I know the end is in sight of this massive journey. And uh, and uh, so it just kind of worked out. We, we met along the way and uh, she's in med school. So that works out as well because she's very busy. And so uh, she just calls and we talk uh, whenever she has time and I have time all the time to talk because I'm <laughs> right. just out there walking. Uh, so it works for both of us. And, uh, since kind of winter set in and the days are just so short, uh, I knew I was going to take at least a month off when I reached, uh, my sister's home in Denver. And so when I got there, I figured, you know, I'll just come up and, uh, hang out with, uh, with my girl and uh, and really make the most of uh, my downtime before I get back to walking and finish the last little section of of this seven year journey. My goodness, man, that is uh, that is incredible. So it's you know it's a long distance relationship uh, for most people, but not relatively speaking, I guess uh, for you. Yeah. <laughs> It gets longer every day that you're walking. Um, yeah, but, you haven't been able to make it work. It's uh, 
it's it's felt pretty easy so it's it's good i'm enjoying it so far it's really hard to even know where to start with with this story there's so much i can't imagine what's packed into your head uh you've probably forgotten more stories than most people on the show have ever had um <laughs> <laughs> but i would do want to know what is kind of top of mind as you as you approach the end of this seven year journey yeah i think there's a couple things that are top of mind. I'd say probably the most pervasive one, uh, the one that I think of most is just being back in my home country permanently for the first time in about six years. And I think this is something that just about everyone who travels can relate with, whether it's their traveling for three weeks, for two months, for a year, there's always this distance. There's a certain experience of newness that you have when you're traveling and simply just being a foreigner, uh, whether it's not knowing the subtleties of a local culture, whether it's not knowing the language, whether it's looking different, there's always this sort of separation that you have uh, when you're traveling abroad. And that's one of the great benefits uh, and one of the great joys of traveling is that uh, experience of newness and of strangeness. Uh, but after six years of that, um, I was a little more worn down than I realized uh, just from constantly being away. And so then to come home after so long was this great weight lifted off of me and all this sort of armor and uh, and kind of emotional callousness that I had built up to protect myself in these strange places, they, it all fell away. And I've just really been able to relax and enjoy walking across America kind of in a way that I haven't enjoyed walking in the seven years of this journey. Uh, it's always been about discovering everything around me and outside of me. And now to come back, I'm I'm kind of processing everything that happened inside of me and how much I've changed over these past years because I'm in a safe, uh, familiar environment. And so just coming back and and walking like I did from Seattle down to Denver over these past few months has really been uh, relaxing and has helped me yeah, look back and, and process all these in, insane and crazy things I've been through over the past seven years. What has changed in your eyes about America since you've been back? I know you're looking at it with new eyes, but it, you know, it's been an interesting six years that you've been away. What's different about it or what, what is so comforting? That's, that's an interesting take. Well, what's comforting is just being home. Uh, I think if I had my choice, uh, I would pick other places to live than America. Uh, but you know, that's not to say you don't love your home and, and America is, a great country and very wealthy and there's a lot of things and uh, the people are very, very friendly. But I would say what's changed and what's I think has been really exacerbated by COVID is it, the country seems kind of more divided, which is frustrating because I am pretty certain for the most part that, well, I am certain for the most part that just about everyone is is good and has the right intentions. And uh, so to see uh, the U.S. kind of so divided, just so many bad faith arguments kind of dividing the country and is is a little heartbreaking. Uh, so that that's that part of coming home is difficult because, uh, yeah, I felt like, uh, yeah, when I left it, it America's standing in the world was a little bit more assured. And now it seems a, a little bit uh, less assured. And. Yeah, there's just so that like the part of coming back and 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 uh, kind of the difficulty of living in America is there and is is definitely on the forefront of my mind. And and that's another factor of when you travel a lot, uh, you have a lot of different ways to compare your own country to the world. And I think that's one of the great 
benefits of traveling is that you're able to see other perspectives uh, on your own country and ways to improve your own country. And uh, I, that makes me, uh, again, after these, after just years of traveling through country after country after country, uh, it, it makes me really uh, politically uh, aware in a way that I wasn't before and kind of more concerned about simple things just like like I know we can do healthcare better. I know we could uh, have better bike lanes, which is something so simple but makes such a big difference, and uh, better public transport. And uh, there's just a lot of structural things in the U.S. I mean, just a better, you know, more representative democracy is a good start. Uh, these are all <laughs> massive things. I'm not sure if this is where you wanted the question to go, but these are all things that are kind of like on my mind now that I'm coming back as well as. Uh, you know, just comparing it to all the other places I've been and and wanting the best for, uh, you know, this place that I love and that has provided me a great life. Yeah, man, I, I didn't plan on asking you that, honestly, but you mentioned it and uh, just just being happy to be home. Um, I, you know, I totally get that. You know, home is home. You can't change where you're from. Um, mm -hmm. You can change where you go, but you can't change where you're from. And I, I don't know about you, man, but when I travel the world, it almost makes me more patriotic in the sense of like, I want my home to have these elements. I want I want my home to strive for this. In, in a not patriotic in that sense, rather than yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a different definition of patriotism than I think you just think about in, in, instinctively. And it sounds like you have that feeling of I, I want to invest in this place to be better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely this sense of when you when you go abroad and you're talking to people from you know, Switzerland or Kyrgyzstan or Turkey, wherever it might be, you know, they, you always want to share uh, the great things about your country. And so that, in that sense, it makes you uh, patriotic. And, you know, you talk about each other's countries and what, you know, what your country does well versus what their country does well. And uh, I think that's one of the great things that makes America so amazing is that like we have so many different cultures in here and people from all over the place. Uh, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's very beautiful. Wow. Well, I tell you what, you're, you're, you're from, uh, not just the U S but your finish line and where you're going is, is, uh, you know, and it, I don't know if it's an adventure hub, uh, New Jersey. Um, <laughs> I think that's the same reaction. A lot of people hear from me when I say I'm from Florida, <laughs> but, uh, so w when you visualize the finish line, what do you see? What, what's going through your head? How are you thinking about it? And, and what, what does that look like to you? Well, definitely, the night before I finish, I'll stop in Philadelphia where I have a, a ton of cousins and I'm sure I'll stay at one of my cousin's houses and I'll party with my cousins and it'll be awesome. And then the next morning, uh, walk over the Ben Franklin Bridge and down the main street, Hadnaf of my hometown and, uh, you know, maybe a little welcoming committee there kind of thing. I know some people are planning some things and it'd be nice to have a little, um, you know, something to share that moment with. And yeah, I'll stop out front of probably this historic theater that we have in town, the Westmont theater. And that'll be that. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I picture it, you know, with my family and, uh, yeah. And Savannah will become the first dog to walk around the world, which I'm kind of like more excited for her than anything else. That's, you know, crazy thing. And she won't uh, even know it. Yeah. She won't even know it, but she knows she'll be home because she'll be with, uh, you know, her grandparents, she'll be with my parents and she'll be happy about that. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think at this point there's a, there is a little bit of, uh, I'd say hesitation or trepidation or, Maybe even a little bit of uh, fear about ending. Uh, maybe not fear. Maybe just a little more anxious about kind of, you know, what comes next. For this is, you know, this idea of walking around the world is something that has directed my life since I was seventeen. I've known since I was seventeen that this is what I wanted to do, and for it to be ending sixteen years later, uh, finally is, you know, I've basically spent half of my life with this idea directing me. And so now I got to figure out what the next, you know, guide is or, or where I'm going to, you know, take my life next. 
And so with that sort of ending, uh, yeah, there is a sort of anxiety. Uh, and that was always also the intention of making this such a big adventure was that I didn't want to just cycle for six months or to backpack through Europe for a few months. I wanted this to be uh, my life. I wanted it to be um, a lifestyle for me and I wanted it to change me and I wanted to see a lot of the world. And so in that way I, I succeeded and everything kind of went as designed and as, as I planned. Uh, but now that, you know, this is something so big coming to an end, it's kind of a question of, you know, where do I go from here? And that's what I uh, luckily have some some months to figure out and, and lots of times to think about it. It's going to be whiplash no matter what you do next, unless it's just you keep walking because nothing's quite like it. It's you, You've mentioned that a lot of your memories right now or a lot of your thoughts right now are memories about what you've been through as you get closer and closer. W- what are you thinking about or what has been some of those high-level lessons that you've learned from this experience? Yeah, I would say probably like, the, the main lesson. Or there, there's a couple primary lessons that have just been drilled into me over and over and over again. Uh, the first one is just <clears throat> like so much of life and so much of a person's life is just chance. And uh, when I was walking through, say, like the deserts of Peru or Chile or through Denmark or through, um, you know, the, the mountains of Algeria or the mountains of Kyrgyzstan, uh, and you meet all these different people and you see children running there and playing there and growing up with their parents there. It's a very simple lesson and something I think most people I would hope kind of most people understand even intellectually that life is mostly a lottery, but to see it every day and to see these, all these different life, all these different lives and lifestyles and, and to talk to all these different people, it just gets drilled into you over and over and over again that, yeah, so much of life is, is just chance. I mean, if at a very simple, simple level, if I didn't have a U.S. passport, or a passport from Germany or Japan, uh, somewhere with you know, a strong a visa program, then I would not be able to do this. It's as simple as that. Uh, there's an amazing guy in Iran who has walked all over Iran and would love to be doing the same thing I'm doing, but he can't. <laughs> Just diplomatically, he cannot do the same thing. And so it's something as simple as that. Uh, the other thing is like, I'm a tall white man and, you know, that in itself makes me a lot, uh, makes the world a lot safer for me and in general, probably people friendlier towards me than uh, if I was someone else. And so there's just like all these different factors that come into play and make me very grateful for the life I've had and also just drill home the lesson that, you know, I I have had this great life and these amazing adventures, um, but to not put so much value on myself that I'm this incredible, you know, brilliant, powerful, uh, individual. It, it, it really is for me, it's more an example of just how fortunate I've been. And that makes me appreciate it more. Um, it makes me less, uh, haughty and narcissistic and, uh, just more grateful. And then also, um, it makes me want to be more, generous and giving and to improve the world and to, um, you know, it it makes me more empathetic towards people who are down on their luck or people who have an illness or, or, you know, a myriad of things. Um, just so much of life is just chance. And I'd say that's the, that's the primary thing. And then going hand in hand with that lesson is just how small we are. Um, you know, there are these times when I was walking, again, say in the deserts of Peru and Chile, and I would be going four days in between towns, and I would want to walk faster or more to get to a town quicker and to get out of this stretch of barrenness. Uh, but you just, I just can't, and I could only walk so much in a day, and really, maybe twenty-five miles a day 
uh, when I was at my best form, I could keep that up in perpetuity. And if I walked more than that, then my body would start aching and I would pay for it the next day. And so I had to, again, learn my limits and kind of learn my limitations. And that really, it's better to just, you know, do the work I could do in a day, walk what I could walk, and then put the day away and be satisfied with it and then wake up the next day and do it again. Uh, but really, that was it's a lesson in, in, in limitations. And it's a lesson in kind of the smallness of a single person. I remember being laid out under the stars in the Atacama Desert, just like night after night and having a million stars over me. And every night, the galactic core and you know, tearing through the middle of them. And I would be laid out there on these plateaus with nothing around. So it's just like only the stars in front of me and feeling them almost like crushing me with their weight and their history and their size. And this is after walking through the desert and, and having these lessons of limitations just burn into me from walking every day. And then at night, looking up at these galaxies and stars and feeling the real smallness and and then that compared with you know talking to these there's people out there in the desert uh living in these little bamboo shacks and this dude is just selling oil for passing cars and it's like that could just as easily have been my life and it would have been maybe no better no worse and i should respect this man no more or no less than anyone else. Uh, he's just another person who probably wants to make a little money and then hang out with his family and laugh with his friends. And it doesn't matter if you're a bamboo shack in Peru or if you're in a snow-covered town in Arslanbab, Kyrgyzstan, or if you're in a penthouse in New York. It just all comes down to just want to live a live a happy life probably with her family and and find some contentness and purpose and you know the 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 surface things change the foods change the religions change but everyone kind of all the world religions and everything else pretty much comes down to just you know don't be a dick and be nice to your family and your friends <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from our new sponsor, Crux Academy. Uh, if you've been inspired by this show to get out there and try a new adventure, try a new sport, uh, but you don't know where to start with actually learning how, uh, I totally understand. We provide a lot of inspiration on this show, but we don't give you a lot of how-to. That's where Crux Academy steps in. Crux Academy is an online platform that teaches top-tier outdoor adventure sports classes by the absolute icons in those sports. So whether you want to learn how to boulder, fly fish, mountain bike, plan adventures, um, even stuff like backcountry skiing and a lot more, Crux Academy has a course for you. And if they don't right now, they're adding new courses every single month of 2022. So if you're looking for a last minute gift this holiday season, Crux Academy is not only a great option, they are doing a very special offer just for ASP listeners, uh, which is a BOGO subscription model. So you can buy a subscription for somebody and get a free one for yourself. Um, you can train with them. Y'all could plan to do an adventure together for a sport you don't even know how to do yet, but you could take the course on Crux Academy and then go do an adventure together. I think it's a fantastic idea. I'm going to be gifting it to some people in my life, and it's a great way to put some of the inspiration that you've gotten from the show into action, get out there, learn something new, and then go do an adventure. So if you'd like to learn more, go to Crux dot academy slash asp to get that exclusive offer and that by the way that is c-r-u-x dot academy slash asp and by the way that subscription is for every course on crux academy's site so it's not just for one course um, i love subscriptions as gifts because you don't just keep cluttering people's life with stuff you get them something they can use and it's a gift that just keeps on giving throughout the year so check it out crux dot academy slash asp all right, let's get back to the episode. Seven years of walking around the world. Tell us your great wisdom. Don't be a dick. Be nice to <laughs> your friend, family and friends. I think my son's learning that in daycare today, too. 
Uh, isn't that awesome? <laughs> that that's yes. that's what drives it home. That is amazing. Well, well, mm-hmm. Let me tell you this, or let me ask you this. You know, we're obviously fed, you know, all sorts of resources for for news or media or what's going on in the world. To you, what is the state of the world at the grassroots level, on the ground level? What have you seen as general themes? Uh, the the state of the world is is great. People are well-intentioned and good everywhere. I would say 99.9% of people are good and well-intentioned. And a lot of it comes down to maybe like a lot of, a lot of misfortune or maybe trouble in a place really comes down to probably more like historical things. Um, a lot of say like a lot of the poverty, poverty in Peru comes from, you know, the conquistadors coming in and uh, and like taking their gold and silver away and establishing these uh, like repressive uh, laws against indigenous people and a lot of that. So like there's a lot of like history in a, in, in a lot of places that sort of oppress people, uh, but people themselves are good and and kind and generous. And I found that over and over and over again. And and again, like not to get uh, political, but this is like kind of one of the frustrating things about a lot of, uh, say, like the larger problems in the world today, say something like climate change, which is it's too big of a thing for an individual to solve. And I, I'm sure you had to remember the same thing growing up. It's like, turn off your water, close your fridge, you know, and you'll save the planet and save the water kind of thing. Uh, but there's like structural issues. And and the problem, I think this is like a uh, maybe a thing that not everyone understands because you know it's easy to dismiss hum- humanity as bad and ill-intentioned and uh, and maybe stupid, uh, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think I think people are 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 kind and smart and uh, and uh, good intentioned, uh, but a lot of systems aren't properly in place to give people a good life and something. Just trying to live your life without consuming plastic is like a very easy example. People are small. You can only do so much in a day, which is, again, why, you know, this sort of lesson in humbleness and sort of understanding that's kind of been drilled into me uh, from meeting all different walks of life and, and having lots of time to reflect on my own life. When you think about just how small one person is, is that there, and how complex the world is and how many of us there are now, uh, you need good systems to give people good lives. And so uh, for me, it seems like a lot of uh, the world's ills right now come from poor systems. Um, and again, perfect example of that is is uh, climate change. And, and a good example just to think about that is like the average person who just wants to go about the day again, make a little money and hang out with their family. How are they going about their day? They're going into the supermarket. They get a little food. Everything is covered in plastic. It's like that's not a good system to be set up. And so for me, 99, like 99.9% of, of people are good and kind. And, I, and when you look on the news, it seems like the world is burning. And, you, and well, it is, <laughs> but uh, uh, literally. Uh, but like it seems like there's all these evil things happening and all that but most people are just living their lives and they're and and they're they're just normal people you know wherever they are and uh it's really easy to kind of get overwhelmed by uh this kind of uh these like single pieces of news and and think the world is so bad uh but no i mean people people are good and uh i think again when you travel and and maybe you spend time in in istanbul or or Dubrovnik, or, you know, wherever it may be. And in your mind, before you travel, you think they're these very foreign, kind of impossible to imagine places. And then you get there and you go, oh, no, this is just people living like anywhere else. And um, yeah, it's an easy, it's an easy thing to forget. And it's an easy thing um, to really not even think about if you haven't traveled and to kind of assume that people are different in other countries when really they're not. And it's just historical context or, you know, landscape or um, the political systems that are set up or the economic systems that are set up that, uh, and then also, and then also maybe just getting, 
uh, painted a certain way by the media. But yeah, there's a uh, much greater forces uh, at work that uh, you know we just don't don't fully comprehend. But I'd say on the grounds, the world is doing good. People are good. People are kind. Go travel. Talk to some people. Life is good out there. I got to take your word for it because you're the one that has seen it way more than probably anyone. Well, I'm sure we've got some guests that have done some similar. We've had a lot of, or some listeners that is, but that's absolutely fantastic to hear. I was going to ask you, do you have a story that you could maybe exemplify or just illustrate this, how good the world is? Something something that, you know, I'm sure you got millions, but uh, hmm. anything that sticks out to you about the world being good? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, example to think about it. Uh, so I was in one of the last countries I walked before returning home was, um, Uzbekistan, uh, which is, uh, a little country in central Asia. I'm sure, I'm sure you know where it is, but just for your listeners, um, and anyone who doesn't know, yeah, it's, uh, a little country in central Asia, which, uh, had this very repressive uh, dictator over the past uh, so many years until about 40 years ago. They were part of the USSR and very, very closed off and pretty impoverished uh, country. And I'm walking through Uzbekistan and uh, well, like on <laughs> this is maybe not exactly a story, but I don't think I paid for like a single meal every, any time I stopped in a restaurant, they would never let me pay. Uh, but then to bring it down into like a single story, I stopped in this really uh, kind of tiny little village, you know, nothing around. And there's a little tea shop. And in this tea shop, there's no sign for the tea shop because uh, there's sort of, there was no real like market capitalism. There's no tourists. So there's no reason for a sign. Everyone who wanted tea in the town knew where the tea shop was. So they just didn't need a sign. And so anyway, I find this and I'm sitting out front with, with a couple of locals and some more locals come. And then we're all sitting there sharing tea and using uh, Google translate to talk. And then they call their, their son uh, or one of their sons over, uh, they, they give him a call and he speaks English and then, uh, and then he comes over and he's, and he's, and he's translating for, uh, uh, for me and, and everything else. And, uh, it was just, um, you know, it's not the most profound example. And, and I've had people give me things and I've had hundreds of people host me in Uzbekistan. I had, I had people host me in Tashkent and, and in Georgia, I had people host me in Azerbaijan. I had people host me. So that happens all the time. But just like on a, a simple example of just passing through this village that in your mind, you know, you don't know anyone before traveling. If I even tried to begin imagining what it would be like to walk through this little village in Uzbekistan, it would probably be, you know, uh, kind of laced with some fear and worry uh, about maybe, I'm, you know, who knows what it's like there. But instead, you know, it's what it's like is that I sat down and I had some great conversation with a bunch of locals and they gave me tea and bread and tomatoes and onions and, and fed me and told me about their country. And I said goodbye and wait, you know, and, and moved on. And, and that's what the experience was like in the town. And I'd say that's like repeated more often than not is, uh, you know, a lot of people just want to go about their day, which is of course, um, but you're going to find like far more welcoming, curious and kind people out in the world than you're going to find nasty and mean people. And again, like people have mean and nasty moments, but I'd say in general, people are more welcoming than anything else. And I think that little moment of sharing chai uh, is like a good example of that. And another one in uh, Uzbekistan, which is perhaps a better example is uh, when I was walking there it was getting up to. Uh, well over 100 degrees every day and wasn't even the beginning of, you know, summer there, the worst of it. I uh, walked up to this mosque and uh, asked them around midday if I could just sit in the shade uh, to get out of the sun. They said, of course, and invited me in and basically gave me a room and a bed to hang out in. And I had my dog, which in Islam is generally um, a little considered maybe dirty, uh, more dirty than cats. So with dogs in Islam, it's, you know, 
they're not always super, super um, like excited to have a dog there. Uh, but they gave her a spot and a bed and everything like that as well. And it was, it was really nice. And then I shared a lunch with the imam. And uh, when I finished lunch, I come out and my shoes have been cleaned. The, the imam's son had taken my shoes and cleaned them uh, with like a toothbrush. And uh, it was just like so unexpected, unexpectedly nice. And I needed the rest from the shade. And I just got so much more than that and was shown so much kindness. Um, yeah, it was really, uh, it was really nice. And yeah, it just happened again and again. I mean, I have, again, just like a hundred stories just like that from all over the world of, uh, just getting, uh, so much more kindness and generosity than I ever expected. Well, what I love about that is, you know, it, it, it might not seem big or it might not seem like a huge deal. What you're doing isn't crazy in the sense of just walking, you know what I mean? What you're doing is not walking. It's just building this framework for amazing things to happen. Just beautiful, beautiful to hear. And it sounds like most of the world is in that boat. Most of the world is trying to do those same things. Be nice to each other, make a little money and spend time with family. That's, that's amazing. And and you find that the same here in the States too, as busy as we can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I, I'd say the Americans are some of the friendliest people you'll find for sure. That's awesome. That is so cool to hear. Well, you know, obviously, you know, you've got a, a, a sidekick, Savannah, more like a friend, mm-hmm. probably like a, a, or I don't know, child. I don't know how y'all look at each other as friends <laughs> or, or, or father daughter type situation. But what are some of the, I don't know, some of the unexpected things that people don't realize that, that incorporate with it? having a dog because I know when we talked the last time you had this experience where Savannah was almost bombarded by a group of wild dogs. Um, oh, yeah. and you didn't know how it was going to work out and it ended up being okay. Uh, but you know, that was two years ago. There's a lot that could have happened since then. Yeah. Uh, I'd say in general, um, like the way I'm traveling works very well with having a dog. Um, because for most of the time I'm just walking and camping and, you know, maybe getting a hotel here and there when traveling with a dog and with Savannah becomes more difficult, uh, is when I have to fly or when I'm like crossing a lot of borders. And so this past year with COVID was, uh, particularly, uh, like unusually difficult because again, normally I'm just walking and really the only time, uh, I need paperwork for Savannah or even have to like, think about, you know, think about her is, um, when, yeah, we're crossing a border and I need to get, uh, another health certificate, or maybe I need to get a specific paper from the government. Usually it's not much, but you know, that's when it comes into play. Uh, a lot of countries, uh, a lot of borders on land, probably 50% of them honestly don't even acknowledge Savannah. So I get the paperwork for nothing. Uh, but when I'm flying and this past year with COVID and so many countries are closed, I had to fly into, um, Tashkent, Uzbekistan to get in to get into Uzbekistan. And so that's like a whole I have to get a crate. And then I had to find friends that could like hold the crate for me. And then I had to you know pay extra to get her on there. And then it's stressful getting her on there. And then I have to have you know, very tight paperwork um, to you know get her in through the airport. And then I had to do the same thing. I, I tried crossing on land from Uzbekistan to Kyrgyzstan. The land borders were closed to Americans. So I had to fly from Tashkent to Bishkek, the two capitals. And again, that's a whole other process. Getting here back in the crate, find when I get to Kyrgyzstan, find someone who can hold the crate and just begins this uh, just like really headachey, stressful process of, of getting her across borders. So when it comes to like flying, uh, then it's really frustrating uh, and stressful. Uh, but for the most part, when it's just Savannah and I out walking, like now with uh, you know, being back in the U.S., and uh, it's always easy to find uh, a pet-friendly hotel here, which is kind of maybe where some like I would get a sticking point, say in Turkey or in like North Africa, uh, where. Uh, I'm in uh, an Islamic country or Islamic majority country, and they're not accustomed to having dogs indoors. So maybe it's a little bit harder to find a pet friendly hotel and maybe I need a rest or something. Uh, So then it could be a little bit more difficult. But like now, like for this whole walk across the U.S., you know, it'll be a piece of cake because 
well, people love dogs here, which is another reason why I love the U.S. Um, and then, and there's a lot of good dog food, which is great. Uh, but then also, you know, for the 99% of the time, it's just us walking and then we camp. And, uh, so when we're out there just kind of doing our thing, it's, uh, it's great. And it's a piece of cake. Uh, yeah, the, the difficult, I'd say the most, um, kind of the most difficult sections, uh, with Savannah was for sure, uh, central and, um, South America, a little bit less in South America, but uh, a lot of the dogs there could be really mean. And I think the first two years of walking with Savannah, uh, we encountered kind of more mean and aggressive dogs than anyone else because in Central and South America, you get a lot of these dogs where, you know, maybe the country doesn't have the same level of wealth uh, that, say, you know, the U.S. or Europe does. So they're, they're not taking a dog in to be part of the family. Uh, rather, uh, a dog will kind of show up, someone will throw their food scraps to the dog, so the dog eats the food, and then it kind of stays around the person's house and becomes territorial of, you know, this is where they get the house. The person has some attachment to the dog, but not enough really to show it any love and affection. And so you kind of get this, like, you get these dogs that uh, are given food, become really territorial over this place where they get their food, uh, but they're not getting the same love and affection uh, that, say, a dog like in the U.S. does, where, you know, we are, where like dogs are like a religion for us. And um, so, so in Central and South America, it was pretty tough with Savannah because these dogs would come charging out on a daily basis for sure. And, uh, you know, most of them were not truly. Yeah, I think I've only seen two dogs where I actually thought like if this dog got Savannah, it would kill Savannah and it would rip my leg off. Um, one was in Algeria and then the other one was in Azerbaijan, uh, where I was actually like really terrified of this dog. Uh, but for the most part, the dogs are just like aggressive and um, and, you know, maybe would snap at you or something like that, but not, you know, these killer dogs. Uh, but then after that, it's, uh, I mean, again, for the most part, after those first two years where we encountered more of those kind of mean dogs, uh, for the most part, all through Europe and, and North Africa and and then, um, you know, into Central Asia, the Caucasus and Central Asia, for the most part, it's just like, it's just, we're walking and then we camp and then we walk and we camp and walk camp and it's great. And, you know, and the benefit is I have uh, this companion who is always excited to go for a walk. And when I camp at night, she's asleep beside me. And if something comes, she barks and jumps out of the tent. And, uh, and, uh, and, and then I have this companion when I'm in front of an amazing view, I can sit beside and kind of share with. And so, uh, yeah, the benefits of traveling with Savannah are, have been, uh, profound and yeah, I've grown just like, an insane respect for her because she's such, she's just so tough. It's crazy. Um, I, I remember thinking in the desert of Peru and I had this stomach ache at the time from, uh, eating some, like some really bad, uh, I was like on the hunt for, I had this really strong craving for general Sal's, uh, chicken for like, for like a month. And I kept trying all these different, uh, every time I got into town, I try some, different uh, uh chinese food and, and peru has some an interesting mix of peruvian chinese food because they had a lot of uh chinese come over to work in the mines uh um a hundred years ago and uh, so this peruvian chinese food and i kept trying all these different dishes and i had this really bad like oyster <laughs> oyster chicken dish and my stomach was just like destroyed from it and i was in the desert and then walking in this, you know, another like three day stretch and just my stomach was killing me. And I was thinking, it's like, I know Savannah has had stomach aches, but she never stops and she never slows down and she never complains about it. And she always does whatever mileage I want to walk. She walks and then she probably wants to play at the end of the day. And uh, yeah, and so she's just uh, she's such just like a great example of just stoicism and just doing your daily work and and kind of getting on with things. So yeah, she's a beast, a great companion. And, and being happy doing it. That's the most amazing. And being happy, yeah. It's stoicism mixed with joy and, and fun. You know, they just want to have fun. That dog has lived a better life than pretty much everybody listening. 
<laughs> and probably one? you too. She's probably having more fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm taking care of everything for her. Yeah, you know, exactly. She's like, well, this is great. You know, seeing all this stuff, get food, get to get, I can stay in great shape. It's such a cool aspect of it, and I'm sure that has just added so much to the last six, seven years. Jeez. Well, well, tell me this. I know, I know we're staying at kind of like a high level with everything just because you have mm-hmm. so much you're processing. Yeah. What has been one of the most challenging seasons or what was one of the hardest times to get through out there? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Hmm. Um, there's a couple of that kind of stand out. I'd say for the first two years, like through the Americas, uh, kind of for as difficult as they may have been, like Costa Rica, the temperature was just insanely hot. The soles of my shoes melted off my feet. Um, and then again, like the desert was, was very difficult and crossing the Andes was challenging. But at that time, I was kind of so on fire with the idea of walking around the world that everything was just you know, so enjoyable and, and it really was just a piece of cake for me. And when things got more difficult was I had a bacteria infection after South America that almost killed me. I lost uh, about 45 pounds and was out of commission for about seven months uh, and then in a lot of pain. And when I was finally able to get back to walking, I started uh, Europe from uh, Denmark and I walked down to Spain and I was at that point, I was like returned physically, uh, but when I had this bacteria infection, I was in so much pain for so long uh, that all my thoughts just kind of like bent negatively, and so I, I became pretty pessimistic and mean and and bitter, and not in like a dramatic way, but just kind of just like everything was just kind of tainted with this, yeah, like this pessimism from this that pain that I was in for a while. And when I got to uh, San Sebastian, Spain, I needed to get a a visa extension. My Schengen visa had ran out. My 90 days had run out. So I needed to get an extension um, for Spain. And so I stayed there for about a month and a half. Um, Took forever for them to process the visa. And I didn't know anyone in the city. And I was in, I couldn't really afford the city at the time. I, I had no money and I wouldn't have stayed there uh if I had my if I had a choice because I couldn't afford it and so it was like I didn't know anyone and I felt very alone and I would just study Spanish for a few hours a day and then kind of had like nothing else to do I just kind of wander around or I'd you know walk over walk to a beach and, and swim or something like that but it was kind of like it was a really dark period because it was the only it was the only time where I questioned um, like I was just thinking like what am I doing out here you know I'm just out here on my own and my family and all my cousins and, and everything are on the east coast and and I'm just like out here you know just what you know what am I doing I was just questioning things and uh, but at some point I got the visa and I walked uh, a pretty good section of uh, the Camino de Santiago, and I had this community around me, and and I would uh, uh, meet these pilgrims uh, who were kind of, it's the only time where I really shared a route with other people walking, and it came at a really good time where uh, like I needed this community of people, and just having people to share coffee with every day, and, and, and talking with people who were doing this for religious reasons or because someone in, uh, like a loved one had died or, um, you know, maybe just to escape in a nine to five that was draining them and they needed a little adventure and, and having all these uh, varied reasons and, and having all these varied conversations of the, kind of the benefits of walking and, and the joy of getting away really helped get me out of my funk and, uh, again, like returned like the appreciation for kind of for what I had and for where I was. And uh, so I would say that was probably uh, mentally probably the darkest time. And that's and that's also what's interesting about uh, the walk or about really, I mean, maybe not any adventure, but like you said before, kind of what I'm doing is not 
you know, on a day-to-day basis is not the most dramatic thing. I mean, there's sections uh, going over the crossing the Andes that was like legitimately, you know, that's serious, you know, climbing. But for the most part, you know, I'm just passing through these places where kind of people walk every day. And so really what, what a lot of the challenges is, is mental and kind of just spending so much time with yourself, you really have to have your thoughts in order. And what do you mean by that? What, how, what is out of order look like? Um, it's really, uh, just really, really subtle things of just like how you talk to yourself. Um, if you're in a bad place and, you know, when I'm walking or when, or when you're doing something like this, uh, you're, you're constantly exposed to yourself. And if, it's very easy in modern life to get a hit of dopamine or to kind of cover up any um, anxiety you have right away with just some trivial distraction. Um, you know, be it you can jump on the internet, uh, you watch a movie, you watch a TV show, you can grab a book, you can go out and you can get pretty much any food you could possibly have an impulse for right away. Uh, but when you're out walking, uh, especially in the more desolate areas, and you really cannot satisfy any impulses, and you have these thoughts come and go, and these impulses come and go, uh, they're really exposed. And and so you you see yourself and your thoughts kind of un like unclouded uh, away from any way you would have of pushing them away or or of muddling them. And when you and so I think when you're walking there the kind of two things you you're you're seeing your thoughts kind of more clearly than you would and they sort of they sort of um affect you more than they would otherwise because again you just you can't avoid them. And so when you're when your thoughts aren't like nice and and clean and and, and kind as well. Like you have to be, you have to be really kind and supportive of yourself, um, or else you're just going to spiral down into some dark funk when you're, uh, you know, out there on your own. Like you have to, you, you're the one out there that is supporting yourself. And you're, I'm like, I can't always call someone and say, Hey man, you know, and I do do that. I, I talk to, I, I talk to people, uh, talk to friends and stuff a good amount, but you just spend so much time with yourself. You kind of have to be your own best friend. Yeah. And if you're not, it's, uh, that's where the real challenge comes in because it's, it's all, it's really, is just all mental. What, what strikes me about what we're talking about is how just, how similar this is to just normal life. You know, I know that sounds weird, but it's the same conversations we're having about being a better person or being a better, better, better at, at quote normal life. It's uh, you know positive self talk. It's uh, assuming the best in people. It's just keep going. It's so much of the same fundamental stuff. You've just applied it to something so different than so many of us apply it to, which which makes all the difference. It makes all it makes all these stories happen. It's very interesting to hear. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I usually don't ask, but people always ask me to ask, and I feel like this is a cool experience to ask it about. You mentioned that you weren't able to afford, uh, I think it was in Spain, just just afford being there. Um, mm-hmm. What has allowed you to afford to do this? I know you've got a sponsor, and I want to hear it because I've seen it literally for like the last three years, Philadelphia Sign. I don't yeah. know how much love they get, but I always like, it's such a funny, you obviously know someone there or something, but... I'm um, just yeah. like, this is so random, just to be able to sponsor a uh, seven-year walk around the world. But <laughs> what does that look like for you? Because I, I know it hasn't been easy. Yeah, so um, I saved for uh, years. You know, I, I went to college, and then I worked for some years. You know, I worked through college, and then I worked after college to pay off my loans. And then had enough saved up where I thought I could make it down to Argentina or Uruguay over two years and then kind of right uh, the year before I was going to leave started kind of gathering everything together and then had a couple uh, news articles written about me and 
um, you know, the, the impetus or the, the catalyst for this walk, it was uh, my friend, uh, Anne-Marie, who died. Uh, she was 16 and I was 17 and she's died in this freak jet ski accident. And that's sort of what woke me up to kind of my own life and my inevitable death. And uh, so that's when the World Walk was born. And when I was telling um, these journalists who, again, wrote a couple articles about it, um, the owner of Philadelphia Sign um, knew Anne-Marie. And so that's why they ended up sponsoring me, um, because he was good friends with her family. And uh, and so uh, that was like very fortunate in that way. And so they gave they, they've supported me. I can't speak you know, just like they've supported me kind of just totally with like full trust and that I'm going to do this thing and uh, just like incredible support. But it was fine for the Americas, which were a lot cheaper. Um, but yeah, when I got to Europe and then like so, like more expensive areas, then it just, you know, wasn't sufficient. So I started a Patreon page. Yeah, when I, I guess when I, before I started walking Europe, and uh, that has really helped um, supplement that. And so I uh, send postcards from around the world. So some people have, have been supporting me from the beginning, have like an incredible collection of postcards that I've sent them from around the world and uh, share high res photos with them and do uh, like monthly QA, keep them um, updated on, on my movements and everything. And, uh, yeah, that's really, uh, provided me, uh, the ability to do this. But again, like I'm not, I'm not making like money off of this or anything. This isn't, I, I I've done a couple of photography jobs. I did work for Google and smart wool. And, um, this was always about like, just for me, it, it was just about the walk and, and the money. It was just a means of, of doing the walk. And so, uh, I really don't, I really don't push it that much. Uh, if I have enough money to, to finish this thing, then that that's more than I could ever ask for. Um, you know, maybe I should be a little bit more aggressive getting money, but, uh, just not kind of how I think. That's a slippery slope, man. That's uh, I think that's what yeah. a lot of us are. On. <laughs> maybe I should try a little bit harder for more. Um, yeah. no, and I don't mean to, you know, pry about that. I just, I think a lot of people assume, well, oh, Tom's, you know, a, a trust fund kid or he had some sort of big inheritance or something um, that allowed right. you to do this. But it's, you know, it, it's never the case. We never talk to anybody that that's the case. It is a combination of Patreon, some freelancing, saving for years, or just literally living on like four bucks a day or whatever it sure. is and, and suffering, you know what I mean? Or just dealing with it half the time and relying on strangers or um, just making it work and, and finding creative ways once they've actually started. So I, I just honestly like to remove that excuse for people um, by hearing from yourself. Um, yeah, I love that. When looking back, what what's one story you think you're going to always be excited to tell? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... This is definitely the one that stands out the most. Uh, so when I was crossing uh, the Andes, I, I had left this little uh, oasis town in Chile, uh, San Pedro de Atacama. And that's at about 2,000 meters, so like 6,000 feet. And um, from there uh, to get from Chile to Argentina, um, the Andes it's basically straight up to about 5,000 meters, a little more than 5,000 meters. And there's, uh, it's, it's, I think it was a hundred miles from San Pedro to Atacama. Actually, maybe be more than that. Uh, yeah, I think it was more than that. Um, from San Pedro de Atacama to this little, uh, border outpost on the Argentinian side. And so, and, and up there, there's no water. There's a couple of saltwater lakes, but there's no fresh water. And so when I left San Pedro de Atacama, I was loaded up with kind of as much water as I've ever carried. And my cart weighed probably well over 100 pounds. And my backpack was loaded with water. And in one day, that first day, I get all like jacked up on Red Bull and coca leaves and everything and push out, uh, do this like 3,000 meter ascent uh, kind of in one day and just like absolutely just like destroy my body. And then when I'm at 5,000 meters, you know, your, your body just doesn't heal the same way because they're not getting the same oxygen. And, and that ascent was so difficult uh, that 
my muscles were just killing me. And I was in phenomenal shape at that point. I'd been pushing up and down these mountains and the deserts in Peru and Chile for, for months at that point and, and did the, the Andes in, in Colombia and in Ecuador. So I was in phenomenal shape. Uh, but that, that first ascent just, just really wreaked havoc on my body. And then, and then I'm at altitude for, uh, another three days and the nights are bitterly cold and I'm not sleeping super great. And then on this, uh, the fourth night, uh, the day before, uh, I can reach the Argentinian border, I'm kind of as far removed from civilization in a certain way that I've ever been. And there's nothing around. There's this little silver salt lake and like the peaks of some mountains and, there's this one little structure in in the desert up there as I'm like looking for a place to set camp, but it's it's super super windy up there, and there's no other structures except for this little square chain link fence like in the middle of nowhere. I think it was just this kind of pipe. It was probably like a gas line release spot. There's this little kind of um, you know U um, like a U piece of of a pipe like just coming out of the ground and surrounded by chain link fence. So I tie my tent up to that and I basically cover half of my tent with sand just to keep it from, uh, to keep it in place. And I get this maybe two hours of sleep, um, with this tent, like slapping against my face and just on my side, so uncomfortable. Savannah sleeps out. She digs herself a hole in the sand and sleeps outside. And, uh, I wake up the next morning and it's calm and kind of like, kick the uh, the sand off my tent. Savannah climbs out of her, the little hole she dug. And I have, I think I have uh, maybe it's like a, two liters of water left. I think it was two liters of, of water. It might have been a little less than that at that point. And so I had to get to town, you know, that day. And uh, I load up the cart and I have to push my cart like, through this deep sand to get back to this little road that... Um, that that leads to the the little desert outpost and i start pushing my cart and my legs just give out on me and it's the it's the only time on my walk where i I had reached like actual physical exhaustion and my legs just give out on me and i face plant into the sand and then i i turn on my back and i i'm just laying there and i knew kind of in the back of my mind that if I just gave myself some time, I'd be all right. And, uh, I could push to town. And so I'm just laying there and Savannah comes over and lays by my side. And I'm just thinking like, this is so great. <laughs> like, this is such an amazing adventure. I'm up here at 5,000 meters in the middle of the Altiplano, uh, you know, as far away as I ever imagined I could be. And on this great adventure with, uh, you know, my best friend who I never imagined I would have, and we're on this thing together. And, uh, it was just like this real highlight of, of, uh, and, and I, and I had pushed my body. I had never like, I've always been an athlete growing up and played college tennis, but I had never, you know, pushed my body to exhaustion. And so it was, it was very satisfying in a way to, to see, uh, to reach my body's limit. And, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just like such a great, you know, highlight of, uh, of adventure. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, a it was a nice moment just laying there and, and looking at the sky and, and, and appreciating how far I had come and, uh, and, uh, yeah, what a great adventure it was to share with Savannah. And I imagine that uh, crossing the bridge and getting into New Jersey and, and walking down a Haddon Ave is going mm-hmm. to feel similar in a lot of ways. It's going to be a moment that you really can't replicate unless you spend seven years walking around the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain that's right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Tom, keep please keep us posted as, as when this is going to happen and uh, uh, expected finish line and we'd love to shout it out and heck who knows no you never know i i work some close to there sometimes so who knows who knows I, i'd love to i'd love to at least be aware of it yeah for sure yeah i mean uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk and hope uh, your listeners uh enjoy the conversation 
First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.